so hopefully everyone can see that. Um, well, thank you very much um, a part of this seminar series. Um, and I, I showed up for a few of them um, last term. My, my uh, timetable, unfortunately, last term was a bit um, packed on a Monday, but, but I, you know, it's a real pleasure to be with such um, great company. And there were some you know, fantastic talks uh, last term and by the looks of it, some fantastic talks this term as well. Um, and thank you everyone for coming. Um, it's a real pleasure to be uh, talking about this topic, which um, you know in recent weeks seems to have become, uh, at least in the Twitter sphere, a sort of uh, bone of contention again uh, in recent weeks. So, so maybe it should shed some light on on aspects of that that controversy. Uh, before I get to the the sort of paper proper, I think I should um, outline some of the background to this this uh, talk and this paper and how I come to, came to work on Savarkar because it wasn't. Uh, planned per se, it was kind of a, a small side project. Um, basically, my my uh, book, which which Zobia mentioned, uh, de dealt with liberalism, specifically that of Bainaroji's liberalism, um, in the PhD thesis. But as I came to convert that to a, a book, I started to think a bit more about uh, Republican iterations of political economy, which the thesis had kind of, I think, indirectly dealt with, but maybe not spelled it out. Um, whereas the book, the book does, and I'm sort of arguing that's you know part of the, the, the radical aspect of his thought, um, aside from the liberalism. Uh, and so I started to think about republicanism, sovereignty, uh, popular sovereignty in particular, um, in, in other avenues of Indian political thought, and was invited when I was a, a teaching fellow at Edinburgh to uh, give a talk at what was then called the Centre for Modern History and Violence, I think, or Violence in Modern History, which has, has now become the Centre for Modern and Contemporary History. Um, and I said, you know, well, look, I work on liberalism, so there's not that much violence kind of involved. Um, so I then kind of uh, tried to work up something about Savarkar which was actually dealing with his first major publication, The Indian War of Independence, um, and how revolutionary violence had a role in, in his kind of iteration of popular sovereignty uh, at that time, which, which wasn't yet at the kind of um, the stage of, of making distinct, distinctions between political Hinduism and, and Islam. So that, that ended up uh, eventually being published in Modern Intellectual History. Um, the, the article deals with um, the personalism of sovereignty in the figure of the hero and how, you know, you've got a very sort of uh, social form of sovereignty that doesn't actually require the state, doesn't require political concord per se uh, to work. Um, and then I started to think about, well, look, if that is, if that is what uh, I make of that 1909 work, The Indian War of Independence, um, in which sovereignty is talked about a lot, in which um, glory is talked about a lot, you know, the, the glory of violence and how that can be used to construct a type of sort of um, political consciousness and um, a, a popular psychology. Does that kind of feed forward into Savarkar's uh, later works as well? And, and does it in some way sequence the relationship between Hindus and Muslims, even if it's in a slightly modified form? So these, these concepts might change as Savarkar's um, own political thinking is changing towards towards Muslims. So that was really the kind of the driver behind this paper and, and hopefully it will find its way into um, an article form uh, soon. Um, I should say I'm not I'm not uh, sort of um, planning on writing a book on Savarkar so this will probably be the end of my my dealing with him. He may find his way into a second book that that uh, deals more broadly with Indian right-wing thought but um, I, I'm not doing another intellectual biography on, a, on an individual. Um, so I guess this is this paper is kind of my take on on how Hindu nationalism arises, 
um, the, the kind of context in which it develops, particularly Savarkar's time in the Andaman jail, um, which has been dealt with, I think, with, by scholars in, in a kind of, um, you know, he clearly exhibits Islamophobic tendencies in his description and so on, um, but hasn't been dealt with in, in the context of putting it into dialogue with his other works. Um, and also explaining the fact that this 1927 account, My Transportation for Life, is not just a memoir of his time in prison. It's probably um, another form of history writing, which, which most of the rest of his writing is, um, that seeks to put himself into Hindutva as a history. Um, so we shouldn't really just take it at face value. It is, to me anyway, a, a deeply political text and a deeply stylized text. Um, so I wanted to see you know, how that text stood up against Essentials of Hindutva in 1923, uh, six Glorious Epochs, um, Hindu Rashtra Darshan, all those uh, works that are subsequently published. Uh, so that, yeah, sorry, those are some of those those lingering uh, questions that that sort of make up this paper. There's another kind of, um, you know, Archimedean point in the paper as well, I suppose, where uh, once Savakar is, is kind of under house arrest in Ratnagiri from the 1920s up to his uh, final release in 1937, um, you know, what in the Indian context is further shifting his political thinking towards a more hardline attitude uh, towards uh, the Muslim minority uh, in India. So are there further changes within this kind of intellectual uh, genealogy that, that maybe, um, certainly the works I've read have not fully captured in my view uh, yet. Um, I'm not going to dwell on the European tradition in this talk too much, but it, it is an interesting thing to to think about that if we're thinking in terms of glory as this continuous theme that, that runs through Savarkar's work, um, you know, how does it stack up against um, a particular European tradition, particularly that comes from uh, the early modern and modern world? So we know, um, uh, we know Savarkar was, sorry Zobi, can you still see me? My, my webcam seems to have disappeared. Yes, yes. Oh good, okay. sorry, my, my laptop's just being... No worries. Um, we, so we know that uh, Savarkar had a copy or read copies of Rousseau's work um, in his time in the Andaman jail. Um, through that, it, you know, it's not impossible to, to um, assume that he may have also talked about, or read about Hobbes and Machiavelli uh, insofar as Rousseau deals with them when he's talking about amour propre or self-love. Um, and in the European tradition, these are very... Um, you know, they're, they're hedged kind of concepts that, that Machiavelli uh, certainly deals with it as a virtue. It's, it's kind of inheritance from the, the classical world, um, but he still thinks that glory should be, uh, as we know, expressed through the prince primarily. Uh, that when kind of individuals or sections within a state seek glory for themselves, that has the potential at least to um, unsettle the, the polity. Um, so you've got a kind of qualified form of virtue there. Hobbes actually takes you know, a different line. He actually refers to the Leviathan as the king of the proud, um, that you know, there's supposed to be a, a, an extent to which the sovereign keeps a lid on this type of pride, this type of glory seeking, um, in order to allow political concord to, to continue. And Rousseau, as we know, um, you know doesn't totally bash uh, self-love, but thinks in a commercial society that it needs to be uh, you know, directed in meaningful, socially productive ways, primarily through education and so on. So throughout this entire European tradition, you've got um, you know, some suspicion at varying levels of, of what glory and pride uh, should be doing in, in any kind of political society. Um, I won't kind of 
pull the cat out of the bag at this stage because the paper lays it out. But you know what I'm trying to say here to some extent is that Savarkar takes a much, much more kind of um, absolutist idea to glory. I mean, he thinks it is just an absolute virtue, an absolute good. It to some extent just needs to be unleashed in a very passionate form um, and, and unleashed socially. There's no real kind of role of the state in his understanding of how how glory ought to function. Um, and I want to suggest that this is a really key part of how he sequences the relationship between Hindus and Muslims um, pretty much after the publication of Hindutva in 1923, uh, right down to his, his death. Uh, and these are the primary works I'll be, I'll be dealing with. So uh, Essentials of Hindutva in 1923, um, a small aspect of his poetry, which was uh, penned while he was in prison, uh, and then some of these ones that emerged uh, as he was under house arrest. So Hindu Pad Padsahi, uh, Hindu Empire, My Transportation for Life, which is <clears throat> his, you're presented as his reminiscences of, of prison life, but which I take to be a political tract, uh, Hindu Rush to Darshan and Six Flores Epochs, which again, um, you know, the title is, is a bit of a, a giveaway there. So, um, Sentenced in February 1911, Savarkar was, was shuttled between the Yerawada Central Jail in Pune and the Dongri, Baikala and Thane jails in Bombay before finally being transported to the Cellular Jail on the Andaman Islands on the 4th of July. Savarkar observed his fellow inmates at these intermediary jails before he gets to the Andamans and describes in My Transportation how he conceptualized the parameters under which individuals from disparate Hindu castes and communities might recognize each other as equals. I suggest that in these colorful accounts, he proposed transforming identities preoccupied with gradations of religious and social purity by encouraging his co-religionists to collectively embrace and demystify bodily and behavioral taboos. At Baikala and Thane, Savarkar was interned with everyday lawbreakers and not necessarily political prisoners such as himself. He noted that social barriers between these criminals were unconsciously overcome in moments when prisoners, open quote, overstepped the bounds of decency, end quote, and lost themselves in excess in order to better cope with the bare life that imprisonment had reduced them to. Pointedly, uh, pointedly referring to their linguistic diversity, Savarkar notes how those prisoners hailing from Zind, Gujarat, and the Konkan coast, quote, scarcely understood, end quote, what the other said, much less what they felt, in spite of this, the impulsive and effective act of reveling in, open quote, the obscene formed the common bond between them all, end quote. Savarkar identified this process as creating, in his words, a social union and a national language. He observed that the prison gangs that form through this effective exuberance tacitly develop ritualistic forms of gift giving to maintain solidarity. For example, by using tobacco as currency, prisoners enforced common values and duties that did not require verbalization or conscious consent. This, in his words, outrageous multitude was united by, again, quote, brute instincts and sensual appetites. These gangs functioned to us as interest groups and as Savarkar notes, were able to force concessions from the prison authorities through the weight of their unity. After this, on board as the steamer to the Andaman Islands, Savarkar mulled the events witnessed on the mainland jails. Bulking at his instinctive Brahmin revulsion to intercaste living, he realized that reason compelled him not to feel shame in sharing social space with 50 others from, in his words, the dirtiest class of the Indian population. 
Savarkar even castigates himself in my transportation and by implication his Hindu readership for not realizing such spaces forced a re-evaluation of quote, self-conceit, superiority and separatedness from the rest. He recommended the strategic adoption of shamelessness in socially mixed spaces as an antidote to Hindu disunity, but also regarded it as a shield against uh, potential external humiliation. To take one example, in the Andamans, groups of prisoners were forced to bathe naked or, or covered by a, um, a pretty threadbare loincloth uh, when the superintendents of the jail were usually um, uh, observing them. And often the superintendents of the Andaman jails, as we know, were, were taken from some of the Muslim inmates. Sabarku claimed that the Jamadars, uh, superintendents, usually delighted in the humiliation of other prisoners, but they found Savarkar a thoroughly shameless, in his words, nude bather, whom they found difficult to humiliate. As my transportation develops, uh, it becomes clear that Savarkar regards Muslims as the only cohort in the cellular jail, demonstrating any form of group solidarity. In noticing this, he placed great stock in the qualities of collective valor and goal-oriented duty epitomized by the Indian dacoit, uh, the armed bandit, recasting his acquisitive violence and criminality as a misdirected political virtue. Savakar reflects on one of the Muslim wardens at Tane, himself a self-confessed dacoit, who re-evaluated his own attitude towards Savakar upon learning of the latter's, and we can take this with a pinch of salt, quote, daring and valor, um, and helped him to smuggle letters out of the prison to Savakar's brother on the mainland. Savakar brags about how he lectured the Jamadar on the selfishness and banditry, um, on selfishness and banditry, while simultaneously drawing attention to the fact that it was a shared appreciation of their courage and glorious violence that seemed to engender this mutual respect. However, though Savarkar goes on to identify the passionate excess of Muslim politics with praiseworthy courage and glory, he also notes that it was motivated by an innate cruelty that was decoupled from any well-reasoned political objective. Savarkar further illustrated this with the example of a Zindi Muslim, quote, super da, sorry, super dacoit, end quote, who used his feared position amongst the Muslim inmates to curry favor with the prison authorities, but also arbitrarily murdered a fellow inmate, so he claims, for being, quote, too intimate with his enemy. Um, we're also then told by Savarkar that another Muslim man in the same gang um, is said to have murdered his sister when he was not in prison in a frenzy because he discovered her in the company of moral rakes. Um, so again, bearing in mind that Savarkar is sort of a history writer here and a, and a, and a part sort of um, highly stylized history writer, I mean, I've, I've taken these claims with a, with a pinch of salt. Um, this misdirected fierceness Savarkar attributes exclusively to Islam and its allegedly narrow theological priorities. For Savarkar, these priorities preferred to attain religious glory through conversion and humiliation as he sees it, and so were not constrained by any legitimate political interest. Uh, the so-called fanatical purposes of Muslim unity in prison did not stop at courting the British authorities for prison rations, preferential promotion, but also using namaz as an excuse to avoid their fair share of prison labor. And then on top of that, he claims they're converting them to uh, converting Hindus to Islam, even though that their political interest in the prison have been met. So he sees it essentially as sort of uh, excess and unnecessary. Savarkar dubbed this two-pronged Muslim domination, not as politics proper, but as an illegitimate, quote, religio-political offensive. Returning to the figure of the Muslim dacoit, 
Savako described his theological excess over secular political interest, claiming that the, quote, Hindu thief is less harmful to Hindu culture than a Mohammedan thief, because the former will only rob, but the latter will break the temple he has robbed, he will break the idol in it, and will give a shattering blow to the head of a kafir, end quote. Dubbing the Andaman jail and India itself as a, quote, jail masjid, Stavrakar accused the colonial authorities of being implicated in upholding a biased system that threatened Hindus as fragmented, no, sorry, that treated Hindus as fragmented and showed favoritism to Muslims as a single block. Complaining to the jail superintendent, uh, British superintendent, Mr. Barry, Stavrakar is asked why Hindus do not begin their own program of conversions in response, and Stavrakar is forced to concede that this was a valid charge. Savarkar regarded Shudhi, um, a Hindu program for reconversion, as a pragmatic and secular political riposte in order to contain uh, Muslim theological excess. He set aside spiritual considerations and readily admitted that proselytizing was, quote, a game, played by Muslims who openly invited the basis elements of Indian society into their community when they were, quote, uh, whether they were, quote, a wicked man, a sinner, or a drunkard. Again, aware of his uh, largely Hindu audience, Savarkar paid lip service to the spiritual commitment and redemption in all religions, including Hinduism, but quickly turns this on its head to secular arguments about collective glory and self-love as a means to quote se uh, social cohesion. Hindus afflicted by what Savarkar called self-righteousness turned up their noses at the wretched who had left their faith and in doing so had risked the hemorrhaging of a future Hindu progeny to other communities who would now claim Hindu heroes as their own. Um, and he's very, very, very keen to point out that he's, you know, yes, there is a numbers game here. Um, it is partly about demographics, but it's always the heroes he focuses on that, you know, what happens when a hero is born to a Muslim community that might have been born to a Hindu community if that conversion hasn't happened. Um, so my, in, in the wider kind of scope of my reading of Sabarkar, I'm, I'm linking this back to, uh, you know, the hero's kind of um, embodying sovereignty that he, he was even talking about in, in 1909. Using examples from Hindu antiquity, Sabarkar asserted that Valmiki, the, the author of the Ramayana, was himself a criminal and sinner turned glorious saint, and that Hindus were forsaking such potential by being indifferent to conversion from their ranks. And he even makes the same point about Oranik Zerb, you know, imagine if Oranik Zerb had been born uh, within a Hindu dynasty rather than um, an Islamic one. To remove such thinking in the Andaman jail, Savarkar claims that he recruited an Arya Samajist who was a Hindu gunda, uh, a violent criminal, um, for hire, um, in order to take Hindu boys under his protection, intimidate Muslim wardens, and achieve parity with the political strength of Muslims through the principle of, quote, setting a thief to catch a thief. It was the very nature of his challenging and base existence that, by habit, in Savarkar's words, made the gunda a tenacious daredevil. This misdirected courage and will was allegedly lacking amongst Hindus and could easily be turned to manliness and virtue if heroism was combined with the appropriate political instruction. In stark contrast to Islam's theological excess, Savarkar promoted the passionate secular excess as a necessary condition for a cohesive political category to emerge. 
And interestingly, he takes the French Revolution, you know, the, the archetypal example of, of popular sovereignty as an axiomatic example in his writing. Um, and he even says, look, um, the revolutionaries and exper experience in government, the Jacobins was an absolute disaster. But what he's interested in is what he calls their ecstasy of joy uh, when faced with the extremes of kind of, of life of counter-revolution and all this kind of stuff. Um, and he's, in my view, is making the kind of quite um, conscious comparison to the common language, the passions that he's described amongst Hindu prisoners that he's seen. Um, and he wants the transmutation of, of Hindu prisoners into some form of kind of um, uh, Hindu sovereignty. That Shudhi was secular is clear from Savarkar's concluding statements on the movement. To his last, he, remain, he maintained that proselytizing was only necessary because Hinduism's notions of spiritual purity connived with fanatical Muslims to drive millions of low caste Hindus to convert to Islam. Since modern political categories depended on a visceral sense of common purpose, Savarkar's justification for reconversion was secular insofar as it was about achieving a parity of social strength, both in terms of raw numbers, but more importantly, perhaps the raw fellow feeling that underlay general will. Savarkar insisted that Shudi was not um, a means of antagonism, in his words, between Hindus and Muslims, but a reconfiguration of their political rela relationship on the basis of, again, in his words, right knowledge and right, under, uh, right understanding. Uh, so it seems to be a very kind of, you know, responsive move in his understanding of it, that uh, Muslims act religiously, they act fanatically, they don't allegedly have political reason, Hindus must deploy political reason as a sort of um, response to this. And he even says, you know, Shudi would construct, and the word he uses, bridge between Hindus and Muslims as distinct and enclosed formations that made parity feasible at this stage. Uh, but Savarkar was in no doubt that while Hindus could be political, political Muslims would always be religio-political. So there's no real capacity in his thinking to, to convert what he sees as a, a theocratic Islam into something um, resembling a secular political category. As a paradigm for how Hindus were especially suited for secular politics, Savarkar would turn to the Gita and its account of kinslaying. Like Gandhi, Savarkar viewed the Gita as a philosophical rather than narrowly theological docu uh, document, so not a, not a doctrinal document, one that considered legitimate action for all without making a distinction between religion and non-religion. For Gandhi, as we know, the Gita's conversation between Krishna and Arjuna was instructive for desireless action only through Gandhi's understanding of Ahimsa. Ahimsa is the only thing that allows you really to achieve, um, you know, uh, unattached uh, uh, political behavior. Others, as we know, like Tilak, read the Gita more as a treatise on positive renunciation, and instead he regarded Krishna's advice as undergirding a dehistoricized political subject that was achievable only through violent action against the fraternal enemy. Uh, while the importance of Gita to Tilak was, was squarely in the realm of the temporal, uh, others like Aurobindo Ghosh regarded the Battle of Kurukshetra as an arena in which all secular social values essentially broke down. Uh, and as Arjuna is faced with his dilemma, Aurobindo recommends the abandonment of caste duty entirely so that man transcends such considerations and lives purely within the divine. Savarkar's Gita, uh, on the other hand, offers what, what I've dubbed a perspectivist conception of social and political truth, in which political interest and historical context were the final arbiters of appropriate action. For Savarkar, Hindu civilization had an inbuilt dialectic between reason and passion, which was especially suited to forming social aggregates in a changing historical environment. Uh, Chaturvedi has, has already shown that Savarkar's Gita justified warfare by ignoring ethics in the pursuit of political Hinduism. 
Um, in this account, this is permissible since Muslim and British invaders had violated the ethics of war and consequently Hindus were entitled to historical parity by recovering their pride and liberty at any cost. I want to suggest that warfare was, was one part of Savarkar's engagement with the Gita, but that he also turned to the text discussion of the tripartite uh, gunas. Sorry, I've been forgetting to uh, move forward in the slides. Um, uh, yeah, he, he also turned to the text discussion of the, the tripartite gunas, or modes or qualities which constituted the personality of each individual. You can see these qualities on the slide. The three characteristics were present in different proportions in each individual, um, and actually in principle in all, all things created by God, um, but also varied according to, to time and place. Savarkar made no judgment on which quality was more virtuous or more morally righteous. Unlike Gandhi, who tended to favor sattvic traits, Savarkar suggests that the true meaning of the Gita, unlike Islamic texts, unlike Christian texts, um, is not in terms of raw numbers, but sorry, uh, was, was totalized, it was not um, in totalizing religious injunctions uh, to virtue and absolute truth, um, but the qualities of people as they varied across time and space. So again, this is a very secular account of what these qualities um, enable one to, to do in terms of analyzing society, but then enable one to, um, to, to you know, uh, create a political movement on the, on the basis of this kind of index. Only a quote, not absolute, uh, un unquote, attitude to passionate social relations defined by the application of human reason would recapture the Gita's essence and its analysis of the quote, fine distinction between man and man. Um, and I think that's really the key quote here about what Savarkar is getting out of the Gunas. Collectively, the Gunas make, uh, made up of the essence of Prakrit, the, the germinal source of nature um, that in most accounts comes from the divine um, and their fluidity and contradictions um, that inherently made any understanding of the logic of nature a mystery. So returning to basic human impulses and bodily processes, Savarkar notes that Patanjali's classical um, you know, text on the Yoga Sutras had reflected on the contradiction in being kind of repulsed at your own body, its functions and so on, but yet finding the identical features in another potentially attractive. Such variance in human feeling was, in his words, beyond human intelligence to grasp. In the end, Savakra's iteration of Prakrit demanded that, quote, if a man wants to live in this world, uh, end quote, he required an, a historically reflexive three-edged weapon, as he called it. And I think there what he's again referring to is the gunas, that not only are you using this to understand, uh, you know, the diversity of kind of characteristics in the world, but you yourself must kind of cultivate each individual one as you encounter an obstacle in real life. So, uh, you know, if you want to overcome um, an enemy, it would stand to reason that the Rajasaic kind of uh, traits are the ones he thinks are, are the most appropriate. Uh, so, as I say, this is not about sort of absolute morality and unchanging truth. On the contrary, one could, in his words, successfully face these threefold qualities, uh, unquote, in their various combinations, only if the weapon was oriented towards a particular temporal goal and was adaptable in its pursuit. If Savarkar's diagnosis was that Hindu political subjectivity in his own time was only possible through passionate glory seeking, then the guna the Hindus needed to cultivate urgently was Rajas. Poetry seems to become um, an important medium for establishing how uh, the gunas work in, in real life as well. Um, 
and and much like you know a lot of his contemporaries like Iqbal and so on you know I think Savakar is, is appealing to poetry because he appreciates that you know a, a reason alone written down in kind of clear prose is not what is going to get to the heart of people's passion not not the sort of thing that's going to make them sequence it in the most appropriate way um and that again you know feeds into why he writes history in such a, a, a kind of um swashbuckling way you know it's a very kind of highly stylized uh, narrative history uh, so you know he's trying to nudge Hindus into a into a political rather than religious subjectivity uh, with some of these interventions. And in a Nietzschean gesture, we find Savarkar collapsing philosophy and poetry into one another in order to rediscover the life-affirming dialectic between beauty, passion, and truth. Um, and again, we don't know precisely which of Nietzsche's texts Savarkar has or hasn't read, but he does make the point of saying that some of Nietzsche is in his prison library. So um, it stands to reason that he's he's, he's you know, generally acquainted with, with Nietzsche's works. Uh, it was only through the nuance of poetry that Savarkar felt that he could express the conflicting impulses opposed on man by the Gunas and Prakrit. Musing upon uh, the natural sciences and Vedantic philosophy, Savarkar stressed the tensions between scientific Epicureanism of his age and Hindu philosophy's preoccupations with self-overcoming through positive renunciation of the material world. Juxtaposed to both of these was the lingering temptation of passionate and desirous collective action, which Savarkar encountered in, quote, historical science, end quote. And it was in reading this that he um, says, you know, the will to power asserted itself with tremendous impact. So he, he feels as though he's trapped between this kind of you know, highly materialistic, highly scientific reading of the world. Um, and, you know, he says in, in his letters to his brother that he... Uh, you know, stands by utilitarianism as, as the thing that you know, really opened his mind to politics. So, you know, on the one hand, you have that Savarkar, and then on the other hand, you have this Savarkar who's, you know, drawn to a kind of Mazzinian, Nietzschean um, type of, of, of self-making. Um, only in composing poetry, in his words, a highly ornate and emotional style, um, uh, did Savarkar uh, feel he could resolve these tensions into a, te a template of timely political action? So alongside history writing, it was poetry that resolved in, Savarkar in Savarkar's words, the conflicting suggestions of the senses, the emotions, and the reasoning faculty of man. And indeed, thousands of lines of poetry were penned by him, um, allegedly on the walls of his cell in the Andaman jail. Uh, these verses he claims were committed to heart by a devoted fellow inmate who, upon his release, relayed them to Savakar's younger brother in Bombay, who had the uh, the epic that he, he penned on the walls published as, as Kamala um, in 1921 uh, under the pseudonym Bijanavasi, uh, which means exiled. So titled Kamala, the poem is a romantic tragedy which, which lyricizes the interactions between four protagonists, Kamala, uh, her husband, uh, Mukund, uh, which is also a word for, for flower bud and um, another name for the young Krishna. His friend Mukul, which is um, a synonym also meaning flower bud, um, and Mukul's fiance Pramila. The verses juxtapose discussions of two types of Rajasaic passion, the erotic and the vengeful. The erotic is concerned with the necessary sexual, kin sexual and kinship relations required to reproduce the Hindu uh, social unit, and is compared with the equally carnal desire for revenge in the poem's wider context, which is the, the Battle of Panipat. Kamala is depicted as trapped by a sort of biological determinism, um, as she wanders a garden of flowers, um, basking in their colours of love, as, as Savakra calls them. Savakra adds to this the erotic metaphor by noting the significance of rebirth through, through flowers and seeds. 
The male characters are presented with the opportunity to contextually navigate their desires through the gunas. Mukund has taken a vow of celibacy until Mukul has married, but throughout the poem, Mukul is, is the mouthpiece of this biological determinism and urges Mukund to attend to his husbandly duties and carnal desires in order to procreate, rather than thinking of any wider sort of uh, personal or political duty beyond that. Yet this encouragement is not born of any kind of uh, Hindu social tradition. In fact, so powerful is the universal sexual impulse that Savakar even hints that Mukul is seeking to satisfy Kamala in the Garden of Flowers himself, even as he's urging her husband to do so. Um, the importance of sexual action is not simply that it reduces the group, uh, it reproduces the group, but that it also propagates the heroes, heroes through which Hindu glory is made possible. Savakar spells this out in listing heroic Hindu warrior kings who fought campaigns against Muslim rulers and were born to a particular epoch to fulfill this glorious destiny. He even commends depictions of Hindu gods and goddesses having sexual intercourse because every Hindu parental union in sex is to be praised irrespective of marriage or the fetters of religious injunction. And so we're again, we're back to this kind of reveling in what, what a conservative Hindu viewpoint would maybe view as obscene. Echoing his description of cohesion through the common vulgarity of, of the prisoners he talked about earlier, Savakar shows how common lust cuts across social barriers and lays bare the naivety of religious morality. By moving away from the arbitrariness of caste and dharma, which of course we know, we know Gandhi takes to be a, you know, a total um, inversion of liberalism and, and the source of kind of Hindu, uh, sorry, Freudian slip, Indian political power, uh, Savakar foregrounds the, the glory attained through historical self-overcoming. As with Nietzsche's account of resentiment, external subjugation, in this case the perceived Islamic yoke in the prison, is as much a product of Hinduism's psychological defects as it is Muslim religio-politics. The only political solution is that human desire and interest are completely fulfilled by the application of individual will and self-overcoming. The gunas allow for this transformation, where Islamic scripture ostensibly uh, does not. With the prospect of war, however, Savakar also uses Kamala to explore when it would be appropriate for carnal desire, and so the potential to reproduce heroic potential, um, to metamorphosize into martial glory. Here he signals the adaptability and reflexivity of the gunas when there is a sudden and emphatic coercion, uh, incursion into the bedroom um, at the point of, of Mukund and Kamala's orgasm, or so it seems the, the, the point of their consummation. Mukul, the soldier, or dressed as a soldier, bursts into the bedroom and is determined to answer the call for Shivaji's uh, call to arms, even though Shivaji's deceased at this point, um, to avenge himself on the Muslim armies in the name of you know, the heroic Shivaji. Um, at this point, Mukund, in line with Savarkar's reading of the Gita, adapts his pursuit of glory to new desires, new interests, and new psychological needs. Mukund flatly tells Mukul that he can no longer promise to bed Kamala and stay by her side when the enemies of Hindutva were poised to humiliate them. He rhetorically asks whether he and Mukul were not identical all along and that one need not make a definitive choice between sex and martial sacrifice. As Mukul had shown in the garden, uh, when he was sort of coming on to Kamala when he shouldn't have been, one could and should pursue lust and a soldier's duty with equal vigor in order to vouchsafe the sovereign Hindu interest. So at this point, um, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's sort of background knowledge, so I don't want to go into too much detail. But uh, my suggestion is that the shifts that happen in kind of British constitutional reform, 
you know, in nationalism with things like the communal award, um, the, the sort of concretization of, of the Muslim separatist issue in, in Indian politics actually causes this, this doctrine to become radicalized even further. So at this stage, we're talking of a certain type of parity, um, Hindu glory seeking in order to overcome humiliation so that you can achieve some element with what's seen as the, the glory of, of um, a Muslim theological interest, even if it's not political. Um, after the, the late 20s and 30s, I, I think this takes a more sort of absolutist turn. So Sabarakar is eventually released in the 30s, uh, as we know, goes on to become the leader of the Hindu Mahasabha. Um, and we know within the Mahasabha, Hindutva was adopted as a popular definition of Hindu national selfhood, not the only one, but but was engaged with quite quite widely. Um, so, for instance, B.S. Munji and M.R. Jayakar, um, the prime consideration for them is communal parity through military force, such as um, that was uh, such that Muslim theological aspirations to sovereignty were, were contained within a new political concord in which Muslims had to quote, uh, and this is Munji writing, so comport themselves that they may soon come to recognize that it does no longer pay to attack Hindus wantonly, end quote. Uh, what Savarkar's secular definition of Hindu politics um, reinforced was in Munji's words that victory alone at any cost and by any means counts irrespective of truth or general conception of sin. However, glory uh, as a prerequisite for rekindling self-love seemed to fade from Munji and Jayarkar's iteration of Hindutva. So they, they focus on one aspect of it. Um, they took an integrative view of Hindu civilization, which um, you know, actually in some ways is more, more conservative than um, Hindu nationalist, um, you can find it in K.M. Munshi and Rajaji and people like that, uh, as a historical given, but lamented its lack of military organization. The existing cultural distinctiveness of Hindus and even their Satavik virtues were to be applauded. So you can see why these figures also do, um, you know, uh, are quite laudatory towards Gandhi at various points. Um, uh, and, and could be applauded, you know, once the shadow of war had kind of passed and the shadow of conflict had passed. So in another quote, um, uh, it's uh, Munji says, uh, you know, well and scientifically cultivated might to punish those who dare disturb your nonviolence. So, you know, you need to do it in order to actually retain nonviolence, which is uh, the sort of statement I can't imagine uh, Sabrakar making as uh, using nonviolence as a kind of absolute um, form of morality that you're trying to get back to. Jayakar and Munji may have regarded the Congress Khilafat Alliance as an artificial unity in their words, but they had little to add beyond the clamor for military organization and greater capacity for self defense. A more nuanced reading was undertaken by Hindu idealists like Najpat Rai and Malavia, and even Swami Shraddhanand, who was a leader of the Shuddhi movement uh, in, in northern India um, when Savarkar was incarcerated, but also afterwards. These individuals certainly recognized the need for Hindu military organization, but also a wider program of, quote, rekindling the glory, uh, unquote, of Hindu civilization. Um, through renewed self-love and the recognition this would force upon other communities through respect. A stalwart supporter of Gandhi, Shraddhananda did spiritualize his politics, unlike Savarkar. He interpreted the Gita's battle of Kurukshetra as a real and sinful event, which ushered in, in, in his uh, view, the Kali Yuga, an age of mutual jealousies and pride, after which Hindu cohesion was forever undermined. However, Shraddhanand, like Savarkar, did propose that Hindu self-respect could be rekindled through a program of Muslim reconversion that did not make caste distinctions, but actively encouraged the lower orders to return to the fold. The construction of Hindu temples in every major town capable of accommodating up to 5,000 worshippers in Shraddhanand's ideal would inculcate the same undifferentiated passion nurtured by uh, the Islamic Masjid in his view. 
Malavi and Lajput Rai also named Savarkar's Essentials of Hindutva as the most important contribution to Hindu ideology because it offered a clear definition of a liberated, glorious, and ascriptive Hindu national being. Shraddhanan considered the writing of Essentials as itself a glorious step forward in the Hindu reawakening that matched, in his words, the Vedic dawns that had inspired earlier Hindu sages. And in Lajput Rai's words, Hindu glory did not contemplate the exclusion of anyone who is prepared to sail under the Hindu flag and takes the credit or discredit that attaches hitherto. So you can see there's a variety of kind of interpretations of, of Savarkar's doctrine there. Um, you know, Lajpat Rai, uh, you know, a lot of good work being done on him recently, I think is a bit more sort of dynamic in his view of um, the Hindu Muslim question, but you can see others taking a slightly more uh, rigid view as well. Um, I think the rest of this paper really wants to say that you know, Savarkar is definitely leaning towards that, that rigid view as, as time goes on throughout the 30s and 40s. Um, though they did differ from Savarkar, the, the paradigms of Hindu being posited by the idealists captured much of what Savarkar's emphasis on desire, passion and glory intended to convey. It was not enough to achieve parity through strength of arms alone, one had to have a positive account of oneself as a social unit through glory and pride and self-love um, and the respect and recognition this forced um, on other, uh, from other communities. Um, so as Savarkar says, you know, there cannot be an honorable unity between a slave and his master. Um, and and you know, this Republican language, I think, is very telling. It's not the language of interference. It's not the language of um, positive liber liberty per se. It's the language of the slave, of, of inhabiting a kind of psychological space um, that he thinks doesn't allow Hindus to, to prosper. Savarkar even re reassured Muslims in his 19 1925 work, Hindu Pad, Pad Sahih, that just as Muslims had their own heroes around which a sense of pan-Islamic striving developed, his perspectivist account of communal glory positioned Hindu heroes like Shivaji against Muslim foes. And it's a really interesting section because it, he's almost doing the thing that says, you know, I, I allow you to have your history and your heroes are your heroes. Um, and I may write my heroes in a way that make your heroes look bad or cowardly or whatever, but, but it's just a necessary aspect of writing history for a community. So again, th there's this sort of moving away from any sort of um, empirical truth, but, but, but more an attitude towards what history writing can do for a community. If in these stories, the Hindu heroes were ultimately defeated as they were at the Battle of Panipat, the record of glorious collective striving made the future rebirth of Hindu political identity possible. If carnal desire was among the more powerful tools to bring about social unity, individual sexual competition and lust obviously risked unsettling the social boundaries one was trying to maintain. And as such, Savarkar admitted that eventually all humanity would sooner or later have to be considered a single community. Um, so again, there's this retention of a certain kind of liberal attitude, a cosmopolitan attitude that, that his earlier writing maintains. But at a more rudimentary stage of forming social bonds between fragmented peoples in India, passion would have to generate the largest social unity possible. And at this stage, he seems to think that um, because of everything that's going on in uh, Muslim separatist politics, uh, the Hindus are the only group that can do that. Why human desire had to be corralled into a Hindu political formation at this stage was because one had to pursue the social configuration that maximized the potential will to power of a multitude at a particular historical juncture. In 20th century India, Savarkar pointed to Hindu religious categories as the most appropriate sociological scaffolding upon which a large Indian social unity could be constructed. In this pursuit, Savarkar makes no claims about the theological ambit of the state. 
He endorsed non-belief and the creation of a variety of imagined polities, so long as Hindus retained their general will to glory and political unity. This was epitomized by Shivaji, who carved his Maratha empire out from under Mughal sovereignty, but who never forced Hinduism upon his subjects. Savarkar refers to Shivaji erroneously by the German epithet for king, König, but he actually writes it as Koenig, um, and implies that even the, uh, the um, uh, the linguistic root of this term, the etymology of this term, means the able man. So, you know, is the, the verb to, to be able to um, uh, do something in, in German. And he really, I mean, I tried to look this up whether that was the etymology of Koenig, and there's no evidence for it at all. So, again, this is him really kind of trying to emphasize this business of the sovereign hero must be the man who overcomes everything and embody self-overcoming for the rest of the community. Um, al although this is not the correct etymology, it does emphasize the significance of Savakra's preoccupation with a secular and embodied Hindu sovereignty expressed both as a desire for collective glory and the superhuman will to pursue it at any cost. As questions of Indian Federation considered the permanent separation of Indian communities along more majoritarian lines from the late 30s, Savakra's thinking becomes even more hard line. The Muslim League's separate separatism risks permanently subdividing communities into smaller political units, either within federal borders or in two separate nation states. Savarkar feared irreversible Hindu fragmentation since vestigial minorities from both religious groups would be left in the various Hindu or Muslim dominated provinces or in two new sovereign states. Speaking to the Mahasabha in 1937, Savarkar imputed this strategy to Islam's theological rigidity causing it to irrationally, quote, stand in the way of larger associations and aggregates of mankind, end quote. Under such circumstances, this species of communalism, as he calls it, is condemnable from the human point of view and constituted for him an acid test uh, distinguishing a justifiable nationalism or communalism from an unjust and harmful one. Again, his words. By this point, Savarkar no longer aspired to parity, and his ideal of Hindutva from the 30s would force Muslims into a do dominated minority status in a contiguous Hindu polity. Savarkar's earlier composite account of Hindu-Muslim revolution in, in the Indian War of Independence of 1909 was possible because Hindus had reclaimed their glory and self-love through Shivaji's campaigns against the Mughals and could now enter into a political concord with Muslims who recognized Hindus as equals on the basis of their glory. In the aftermath of partition, however, Savakra totally redefined his story of 1857, with Hindus now described as fighting a war of liberation from both the British and the perfidious Muslim collaborators. Uh, and it's interesting that if anyone plays the role of collaborators in his, his 1909 account, it's, it's the Sikhs. Um, so he's shifted, shifted the emphasis completely. Whereas in 1912, Savakra had hoped for a resurgence of vestigial revolutionary will, um, from 1857 to overthrow the British and create, in his words, a United States of India. By 1949, this ideal was edged out by dreams of Hindu empire that avenged earlier invasions from beyond the Khyber Pass by even dreaming of subjugating Afghanistan. Domineering imperial glory now substituted relative national glory because partition had resulted in the externalization of the Muslim League's so-called religio-political ambition. Even South Asian uh, Muslims were thereby transfigured into, quote, in his words, an everlasting enemy, because there were now, in Savarkar's terms, small Pakistans in every town. Consequently, even if Muslims in India remained a numerical minority, Savarkar accused them of not accepting political minorityhood in the manner of the Parsis or Anglo-Indians, since Muslims would retain the desire and means to dominate with external assistance. When dealing with the political science, as he calls it, of foreign relations, 
one could not throw the question of political concord back onto the social as he had done in his social constitution, um, which is what the Gunas are all about. Which is to say that with Pakistan, there could not be a sort of socially constructed political parity that Savarkar had allegedly achieved on the Andaman Islands. And he, he does credit himself with having achieved that. So again, um, we should maybe take that with a, a pinch of salt. Um, the Gunas remained central to having navigated this increasingly polarized environment. Actualizing a Hindu political category still relied on glory, but could now entertain the complete subordination of Muslims and their relegation to a depoliticized and purely religious minority. Viewing the Gandhian renovation of the Jain concept of Ahimsa as a perversion of the Vedic flexibility imbued in the Gunas, Savakar exhorted Hindus to supercharge Rajasaic passion into, quote, enraged intolerance. To be sure, it was still a vital prerequisite for Hindus to overcome their humiliation, and Savakar continued to critique individuals like Ambedkar, who characterized the Hindu history as a chain of, quote, continuous defeat in the fight for survival. Um, of, of which uh, Ambedkar claims every Hindu did feel ashamed. Savakar exhorted Hindus to move beyond even the vengeful glory of Kamala by extracting an effective surplus through conversion, violence and sexual warfare in order to permanently subordinate Muslims. Drawing on the works of Gujarati Brahmin and former uh, member of the Indian National Congress, K.M. Munshi, Savakar makes the, uh, the reconstruction of Hindu temples um, pillaged by Muslim invaders as a key, of the, a key plank of the Hindu platform. Munshi had written highly stylized histories of India uh, and um, his native Gujarat, which embellished classical and medieval accounts of universal Hindu kingship and victory over Arabs, Persians and Afghans between the 8th and 13th century, uh, centuries. Some of these dynasties had also rebuilt uh, temples destroyed by Muslim invaders, and it was in this spirit uh, that Munshi campaigned to have the Somnath temple famously rebuilt. Uh, in, in the early 1950s. However, Savakar's engagement with Munshi's program was not simply to echo Shraddhanan's scheme of providing an institutional locus around the which uh, a unified Hindu identity might emerge. It did not even repeat Savakar's earlier analysis of the jail masjid as a political combine for conversion. Instead, he now called for enraged intolerance and retribution against mosques as a way of eradicating any Muslim claim to historical glory as a way of forever safeguarding Hindu political sovereignty. Savarkar understood the wiping out of, quote, existence all the masjids without exception, end quote, as the only way Hindutva would be restored, quote, to its original glory. Savarkar's conceptualization of carnal desire and sex also altered from his poetic discussion of it. Kamala had framed the tension between sexual and martial duty as a form of civic virtue through communal glory seeking, in a way similar to Hegel's identification of the need to resolve the tension between family values and civic duty in Sophocles' Antigone, uh, or his analysis of Sophocles' Antigone. Um, after 1925, however, Savakar weaponized sex into an increasingly violent Rajasaic action. As with temple politics, sex became a tool for dominating Muslims through enraged intolerance and relegating them to a minority category. Savakar recommended the abduction, rape, and forced conversion of Muslim women as a secular act of communal reason because Islamic fanaticism, in his words, ostensibly obligated Muslims to convert and marry Hindu women en masse uh, in excess of any reasonable political objective. So adding to the problem, Hindu religious duty was typified by Brahmanical injunctions against impurity and had, in Savarkar's estimation, promoted the chivalry that stopped, um, in his viewpoint, um, Hindu soldiers from raping Muslim women. 
um, and, and, and by allowing non-Hindu women to be re returned to their communities. In not properly understanding the lesson of the, the Gunas, Hindus had, quote, utter disregard of the proper place, time or person for understanding virtue and had, quote, fell as miserable victims as a result. Savarkar's modeling of this uh, abduction and rape of enemy women, in his words, on the epic Ramayana's uh, demon King Ravan, encouraged Hindus to emulate so-called shameless um, Muslim practices. Uh, and I'm glossing this, this aspect of his thought. I mean, Luna Sebastian's written a fantastic um, journal article uh, on it, so that, that's worth reading. But these were justified since they were in defense of Hindu political sovereignty and were not a form of unthinking Muslim religio-political aggression, in his words, um, which he said was now motivated by an unmediated sensuality. Nora Ravan's enemies in the epic, the gods Ram and Lakshman, portrayed as definitively wrong in their chivalry either. So Sabarkar deems them worthy of imitation because their virtue was justly adapted to the context in which they were guarding their own sovereignty. During war, when their women folk were abducted and taken to the Asur kingdom, they responded by meeting out what Savarkar calls military and political defeat, but also what he calls social revenge by killing, uh, in quotes, the she demons of the enemy and rescuing Hindu uh, polluted women without uh, kind of regard for um, Brahmanical kind of morality on purity. So Hindu glory is now, subs uh, now subsisted on the absolute prevention of the future glory of the enemy by attacking their reproductive means and through this their capacity for producing glorious heroes. This, uh, these special weapons for special occasions, as Savakra called them, uh, were justified until Muslims had, quote, dwindled into a negligible minority. So what I want to say is in this perspectivist worldview, uh, the Gunas could certainly nurture religious uh, uh, tolerance where appropriate, but Savarkar decided that such liberality should be allowed only when the Muslim was no longer capable of enhancing, again, quote, the tiger-faced glory and scope of their own religion. So just to, to finish up, there can be no doubt that if we you know, conflate secularity with the idea of religious tolerance or the separation of of, of politics from religious activity as we do in the West, then clearly Savarkar's politics offered a pretty fraught vision of secular um, action and secular politics. But Savarkar's post-Hindutva politics was secular because it redeployed non-spiritual categories like glory in a way that indexed the psychological capacity or indeed incapacity of a multitude for social union. Moreover, in the form of the three-edged weapon of the Gunas, these Hindu categories uh, made Indians the masters of their own social psychology independent of a political concord or a secular constitution. Uh, yet this seemingly dynamic social constitution was predicated as a secular response in Savarkar's estimation to Muslims as nothing but an unthinking religio-political as opposed to secular antagonist. In this way, Hindutva's claim to secularity relies paradoxically in the incapacity to imagine an alternative secular concord based on spiritual but non-doctrinal categories, as arguably uh, Mahatma Gandhi could do. Even as a depoliticized religious minority, Muslims were to be retained within the borders of a sovereign Hindu polity, because the secular categories of glory and recognition, which is to say the conditions of possibility for Hindutva as a political category, were all relative and relational in character. On the eve of decolonization, Ambedkar astutely noted the, the curious destination that Savarkar's thought had arrived at asking why, quote, Mr. Savarkar, after sowing the seed of enmity between the Hindu and Muslim nations, uh, should want that they should live under one constitution and occupy one country, end quote. 
Savarkar would justify this in the language of imperial rather than national glory, citing the Catholic Empire of Austria-Hungary and the Muslim Empire of Ottoman Turkey as political models. In both of these polities, the glory of the majority depended upon their dominance over a congeries of politically subordinated minorities, at least in Savarkar's view. Even if Hindutva was defined against a, quote, fanatical Islam which stood, uh, end quote, Islam which stood in the way of larger social aggregations, the type of secular Hindu politics Savarkar imagined rejoiced and relied upon the presence of the, quote, open enemy. This enemy was devoid of any political reason and whose raison d'etre was reduced exclusively to the object of secular Hindu glory, as and when the historical context demanded it. It is hardly surprising then that in more recent times, members of the Sangh Parivar would justify their political violence by claiming that, quote, Muslims had no compulsion about killing people while a Hindu would pause before killing and ask why he was doing it. Thank you very much.